Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show we have three central planks to our writing manifesto. Plank the first to help you write more, plank the second to help you write better and plank the third to help you be a little bit happier. As you do those things on today's show, I am looking at the first page of a listener's story and suggesting ways to make it a little bit better. But I'm not doing it alone. I have back on the show, Nate Crowley. Uh, We talk through this extract, but we also have a little chat beforehand, um, which just always ends up happening. It's really nice. Uh, It's just been really lovely to to have him uh, as a guest on the show. He's now officially the uh, author who's guested most on Death of a Thousand Cuts and um, you know it's just a little bit of a treat for me because I always laugh a lot when we're talking uh, because he's got a tremendous imagination and we always end up um, in uh, wonderfully silly flights of fancy. Uh, today's episode began after we'd been chatting for a little bit and then he uh, and now I was like oh I'm recording now and he's like oh, do you want to go back to your opening question and we'll sort of start from there and I couldn't remember my opening question he pointed out that it was how has your week been so we started sort of riffing off that and uh well you know it's one of those episodes if you like that sort of thing then um you're gonna you're in for a treat and you're gonna enjoy it if you don't like that sort of thing then there are plenty of others in the archive including over three straight days and nights of interviews with authors and publishers and psychologists and neuroscientists and poets and dramatists and people of all types um, related to the business of writing stories. You've got my 100-day writing challenge, my eight-week writing boot camp. They're both available for you to listen to and work through for free and there's other episodes where I look at listeners first pages as well lots of those so you're spoilt for choice really there's a a great deal for and there's sometimes just ones that are me rambling my writing rambles which I enjoy very much I, I, I imagine them as being my sort of presidential fireside chats um but without the uh executive power if if there if there were those fireside chats uh but instead of talking about the state of the nation the president didn't was just sort of going through his current mental health and occasionally making diarrhea jokes um actually i think they're reasonably free of diarrhea jokes there's a few. You probably you probably got a baker's dozen of them across the different writing rambles. If you liked this episode, um, there's a link in the show notes to Nate Crowley's latest uh, novel, which is a Warhammer 40k uh, tie-in novel. I don't think tie-in's quite right, and I don't think spin-off's quite the right term. It's in the 40k universe, and it's published by uh, Games Workshop. Um, so I'll put a link there if you are into 
Games Workshop stuff, then you'll find it very interesting. I sort of suspect you will, even if you're not, based on how he writes, which is always with a huge eye to making the reader's experience an entertaining and surprising one. There's also a link to his uh, Twitter handle, and I've popped in a link to... As always, my coffee page, if you enjoy the show and you want to support it, you could consider dropping me a few beans. That's ko-fi.com forward slash Tim Clare. Links in the show notes. And, you know, it, it's I just thank you for everyone who, who does that. Um, it allows me to keep making these. That's it. I'm not going to keep going very uh, any more than that. I'm off Twitter at the moment, having a lovely time, feel much more relaxed. I haven't had my morning coffee this morning, though. I was wondering why I was feeling somewhat fatigued, but just got a new supply in so i'm going to pop downstairs and make myself a lovely cup of coffee going to do a little bit of writing today working on a new non-fiction book but my um the cover for my one that's out next year it's called coward has um i've just been able to share it and proofs are being printed and they're going to go out to some people and hopefully hear what those people think about it so it's exciting times i'm not doing as much fiction as i would like to be honest i feel i'm feeling a little, sort of little bit like i'm cheating on uh fiction at the moment not even cheating on i've like fully moved in and i'm um, having another family with non-fiction and my first book was non-fiction it was a memoir so like this isn't un this isn't new territory for me but you know I love stories so much and I've had a little bit of a tricky time with perfectionism when I'm trying to write them. So I'm trying not to overthink it, but it's at the back of my mind because stories are just the best thing, aren't they? Like just making stuff up and having adventures and taking other people on adventures. Unironically, without any putting on of sort of boosterish performative enthusiasm stories are they're, ju they're just amazing and I, I i want to continue writing them and so that's what's on my mind at the moment i hope you're super well and i hope you find this episode enlightening you know we look at uh, a reader's uh piece when we eventually get to it and talk through some things we think it does well some things we think it doesn't do so well and we would like to see improved but also you know we just had a lot of fun and uh, that to me is one of the keys to getting your writing done is to make it fun anyway i'm going to shush now here is my episode i just you know well you'll break into it just as um i've been asked to repeat the question did have you have you had an how's your week been <laughs> my incisive penetrating question there that's what you get after doing interviewing a while. You just get good at these things, knowing how to break the ice. So here's my uh, chat and editing session with Nate Crowley. Yeah, how was your week? <laughs> um. <laughs> That's a. I mean, I, I, I'm gutted that I forgot that because that is uh, a, a Frost Nixon <laughs> level of kind of, of water. What a move! That's like that's like a hyper modern chess opening. That's the kind of like yeah. Um, how was your week? It's, it's like Paxman just sitting down in his armchair and silently, without a single question, unholstering a handgun. 
<laughs> yeah. Wow, he means just <laughs> Yeah, he just Paxman sits down and uh like ectoplasm begins to ooze from what from one nostril, revealing revealing the face of Shadow Christ. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just looking expectantly at the uh, other person. Not, not. He doesn't make reference to it as well. He wait, waits for them to call him out on the e- ectoplasm. Um, yeah, the, the the weird sort of inverse Messiah crouching in the the cracks between reality behind him. He doesn't mention it, but it's there as an implicit threat. Yeah, it's. I I I love the idea that it, it just it's just there to make the whole thing to throw the in, the interviewee off it's just like are you going to mention the elephant in the room i'm not going to i can't i'm not going to even um cop to being able to see it just to see if it puts them sufficiently um off their I game i tell you what though that is a brilliant idea for a demonologist character who can summon this incredibly frightened creature uh, frightening creature but it never does anything it just lurks behind them <laughs> causing anyone there to completely freak out. And it's like having sort of like evil, like a massive evil charisma boost almost, because if you walk into a pub and you're like, did you see anyone with a third wooden arm pass this way? The bartender's just going to take one look at the massive glowering marabou stalk silhouette behind you <laughs> and just spill the beans. Yeah, that's amazing. I, 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 yeah. <laughs> And and but I I love those uh, I love powers that are sort of in, they're like scarecrow powers they're they're essentially entirely bluff um, so that that character will always they they can like seem like they're the strongest but but there's there's no there's no heft to it whatsoever so um, as soon as they're called out on it as soon as someone stands up to them it, they can't do anything with it but. Until that point, someone who doesn't know the limits of their powers, they seem really scary. Yeah, it's sort of like um, a con artist's glass cannon, isn't it? Like, <sighs> you know, this is... If, if it works, the consequences are phenomenally overpowered. But the second it goes wrong, like if, you know, uh, if one of the goons you're interrogating just decides to rush you, um, or like chucks a spanner at your demon... And it just collapses into a cloud of squeaking mist. Like there, you, you're in big trouble. There's a Cordwainer Smith short story where um, they make a fake spaceship the size of a planet out of wood, um, and have it wow. and have it teleport in um, to scare off uh, a hostile invasion. Um, uh, that is incredible. I think the story is called the Scarecrow, but it's basically yeah they 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 make uh, a, a planet-sized battleship, a fake one, um, just to sort of be able to uh, to bluff invaders uh, uh, away. Yeah, it's like a, it's a cool idea. Cordwainer Smith is sort of such a funny writer, just because he was writing a t- science fiction at a time before space travel was sort of had been fully worked out so that in his stories as they develop and um humankind develops space travel um the the first spaceships all have a layer of whelks um Welks. in the to 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 absorb the space radiation in the shielding of the ship 
They like well, just loads of bi- bivalve bivalve mollusks and like clams and whelks inside the ships. Yeah, to stop. But that's absolutely fantastic. What like absolute like top tier biopunk nonsense yeah that's great yeah it's really entertaining and all the ship's weapons systems are um operated by they're not like uplifted but just um sort of like bionically engineered cats they're all all the weapon systems are run by cats because by cats yeah because they can because they're you know like cats like chasing a led light right like yeah. they're just really good at jump it pouncing on something and so it's just using cat reflexes they're just wired up to their their brains are wired up to the weapon systems and the cats uh, are just your ship's like belly gunner basically Tim this stuff's too powerful <laughs> yeah, it's it's really That's absolutely incredible It's absolutely it's really weird and like I I think um his story a planet named Sheol which is like a guy for crimes that are never really understood is being sent to this like it's like a prison planet but it's like a hell planet that you get sent to and the wow. whole beginning of the story is just the prep that they're doing before they send him down to the planet's surface and it's really horrible it's so scary and like the doctor who is giving him like a series of like operations that are like making his skin harder and they're like various things to allow him to survive on the planet's surface. The doctor sort of very quietly says to him, if you want, I can like either like destroy your brain or like, so you'll just, you won't be sort of sentient or I can just remove your eyes. I think, you know, it'd be a kindness before you go down i'll do that for you as a favor if you want me to um oh my god what horror story i know what was this called um that that story is called a planet a planet named sheol um s h uh e o l like the bible yeah yeah and it's wow it's really good it's a really really good story like i'd say cordwainer smith was one of um was he 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 was one of Ursula Le Guin's favorite writers. He's also written he 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 and he, he created this whole instrumentality uh, universe. This uh, sort of uh, world of this universe run by these kind of immortals. And then he was out, he was he was out rowing, and he dropped his notebooks into the pot into the lake, and lost like the second half of his. Uh, continuity with all those all the stories that he'd been planning on it um yeah yeah um it also but there's also like one story he wrote that's like the most like bigoted and problematic science fiction story i've ever read in a way that i was just like i i i like i I must admit i it was so terrible it was so terrible that i laughed because i was like this can't you can't possibly you can't possibly mean this. This is asinine. Like Yeah, that moment of sort of weird shock where you, you, you've been quietly developing the assumption that something's just a slightly risky parody. Yeah. Uh, you, only you, to find that it's sincere. The same the same way that that fo- that the photograph would like this is the future liberals want, um, is like <laughs> yeah. unintentionally hilarious because it's just 
it's just people going about their business and and someone is like and, and someone is like it's going think of the children that kind of level of like you got to be kidding this is so silly um so there's like that's that's the kind of underlying that and that only appears in one story and it's just not present even as an under uh, a subtext in anything else he's written um and it's so, so weird. weird it's really weird and it's really kind of sad but um you know with that caveat um i think that he's written uh i i'd say the two short stories he's written that two of my favorite science fiction stories are um scanners live in vain and a planet named Sheol, and they're both just and he uh, he only wrote like one novel and the rest was just short stories but just as genuinely bizarre um science fiction really weird like um it uh, sort of people with incredible longevity but like a a screw in their back that can be turned and it kind of increases their it increases their like energy now their vitality and strength but like taking years off their life um it's so vivid and weird and not psychedelic in the kind of like self-consciously sort of bizarre but just crazy yeah yeah, but just kind of bizarre in a way he's trying you know I, i think he's trying to write fairly like reasonable speculative fiction but it just his sort of his his criteria for that uh just it's really, really interesting. It's re- I think you'd find it really him a really interesting writer, definitely. Oh yeah, and like the entire universe, like the the entire universe is equivalent of like of Dune, of like uh, of 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 like the spice of the place yeah. that controls it all is um, North Australia. That's okay, like cool. that's where that's where the the sort of uh, uh, galaxy. Uh, crossing resources that are found that that the entire intergalactic economy relies on um ends up being north australia becomes the kind of hub of the of the of the universe which is just that's cool yeah nostrilla is like the yeah is the center of the is like the galactic uh home it's yeah really fascinating writer it's really interesting what you were saying earlier about the wooden spaceship uh because i thought oh that's really cool and then immediately my mind went, oh, but the enemy would have scanners that could detect heat signatures within it and determine that it is, in fact, a hollow sphere of wood. And yeah, OK, sure. But what you were saying about, you know, science fiction in a time before space was fully understood, there was a wonderful freedom because people could do stuff like that. And there wasn't this weird, like, canonic framework of non-existent technologies that set what the rules were for writing. Like, we don't have scanning systems that could, you know... I mean, you could have a team of scientists look with electron telescopes or whatever for months and determine this thing was made of wood, but we couldn't tell at first glance, you know. Uh, The technology doesn't exist, and yet, if we're writing science fiction, we have to assume that it does and prevent ourselves from going down certain angles because of it. And that's sort of sad, in a way. Yeah, I I think... I, the, 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 having a kind of like these uh, commonly understood r- rules for science fiction, I think, it, um, allows uh, an incredible 
um like whenever you're dealing with any kind of set of tropes it allows you if you kind of i guess you use them to their best advantage it allows you to work quickly i i i I think of you know if you have vampires you can basically have a character wandering with two protruding canines and we're like cool like it's a vampire (laughs) like we know a bunch of rules already and you can just do have that vampire be part of the story right that that that's a free that's a kind of free package that when you show the canines or have someone say they're a vampire or whatever we know about we know a bunch of assumed rules about them and any well, it's deviant- a trade-off isn't it you, yeah. you get those sort of you're saving yourself a whole load of exposition by you know attaching yourself to a collection of tropes like that but then you're cutting off like yeah potentially potentially original and strange things you could do as well so it's a it's one of those double-edged ronalds yeah yeah it is yeah yeah and i think yeah it is and um i think that's what makes some of the uh some of that's why there's so many sort of weird gems in the kind of golden age and pulp science fiction because it's just like in uh like in is it the um the re the is it called the reconstruct not the reconstructed man the demolished man what's the ah uh, uh, yeah I don't know either um, <laughs> the, it, I can't remember the name of the the guy who did um who did the uh, anyway like that's got psychics in it um and the the telepaths conversations are shown sort of on they're often like put on the page in columns. But yeah. they'll also be having like psychic conversations and their words will like form the shape of a goblet or something like that to show how they're communicating with each other. And it's yeah, it's, it's very silly in a way. Um, nah, it's brilliant. But that it, is fantastic. Yeah, but it's great. Yeah, exactly. And it, and it's the kind of thing now that would, I, I feel like we kind of uh, step back from a bit. And I I love stuff like that. And I love that sense of, science fiction not being a kind of okay if you want to enter this space then no we're going to play with these tropes not that i not that i mind that not that i don't just like a great you know uh you know galaxy you know star battle or whatever but it's it's so lovely when something's genuinely surprising and weird and you get that with, I guess, like another writer who who did that a lot is um, Samuel R. Delaney, who just yes. had genuinely, genuinely weird stuff, like genuinely odd, like disorienting stuff in his in his science fiction worlds that just made you go, oh, what, what, oh that's that is that how you pilot a a a ship okay cool like okay that's what's (laughs) happening now but like it was it was really it was still human but it was just a different kind of human and i kind of love that yeah it's the unexpected um i did a couple of weird stylistic things with gaskell um unfortunately won't appear in the standard hardbacks but in the special edition which was printed in full color there were some green pages um at particularly significant moments and i asked if they could do that and the printer said yes so that's so cool (laughs) the entire page has just become green at points when things are being particularly weird um (laughs) but yeah i I love doing things like that 
that's really cool and that's you know like that's uh, and this is i i, I think um I can't remember which of the uh, who wrote "As I Lay Dying" again. I... Oh, that was um, Levy, wasn't it? N- no, no, um, it was. Oh no, I'm thinking of Manley's Dreaming. Sorry, edit yeah. that bit out. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I can't remember a, a, at all. One of the greatest uh, uh, literary. Fi- God, this is. Ag- I'm going to edit all, all this out. This is going to be agony. For people... It was Gimli, son of Gloin. Yeah, <laughs> yes, it was. Good old Gims. Let the record, let the, let the record um, show. Now, I, I, I love, um, but he did a, he did one of his novels has got, um, it, it, the the different characters are done in four different colors of ink. Wow. Um, and it's just like, yeah the and this and yeah i mean bs johnson's um mother house normal is the different follows the different um sort of uh internal monologues of different patients in a uh old people's home uh and it's really weird because it's all done so you could overlay the chapters and the gaps in each oh. one um it's really it's kind of difficult to explain but like there there there'll be gaps in the text and you're hearing people but you could overlay each person's section so you get different sections from different characters but they're all the same period of time and if you overlay okay, them you can page for page you can see what each person is thinking at the same time and as it goes on you get the different ages of the characters and one of the characters is really old and suffering from very serious dementia. And their section is almost entirely blank pages. Oh, God. Yeah, it's really, really... It's like some of it is incredibly of its time crass scatological humour. And some of it is incredibly poignant meditations on the fragility of memory and human life. It's It's such a weird... But when you get like, so it sounds really sort of pretentious and experimental, but actually when you get the format, you're reading forward going, because you've heard of the other characters in the earlier monologues, um, because they're referenced and you know, oh, I'll be coming to that character soon. And you're wondering, what are they thinking? What was this person thinking at this point? And you get the, you, you, you get a sense of expectation and then you're playing the game. And I, I, I love that with it, it, quote unquote, experimental novels is is with any kind of whenever you use some, one of these sort of like little different ways of emphasizing something becomes exciting. Green pages. What? See, we just don't. I feel like we're not. I, I feel like I'm not ambitious enough. That's just such a why. Why not? Why not? <laughs> why not? Well, I suppose because it's a yeah, hassle for the printers, but. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it makes it a pricier book to produce, but I'm just, I'm. It may give me a lot of respect for Games Workshop that they thought going to the extra expense of using all of that green ink was worth it for like quite an abstract, like artistic statement. But like, you're reading yeah, I, a book. I mean, you know, it's fairly difficult to experience a sense of surprise these days. Well, not that much, but like to have a sense of like, oh my gosh. And just to be reading a book, a novel, 
and then one of the and then you come to the next page and it's green like did i see that coming no no <laughs> that's that's like... why I, I loved um tristram shandy so much because that does tons of that kind of stuff i actually got the, the green page idea from that because it's got famously a marbled page um and that book astonishes me because despite being written in the 18th century it just did you know like novels were barely even a thing right and it does all of this stuff that would be considered pretty avant-garde and interesting today uh lawrence thumb was just an extraordinarily playful man um and like i find a lot of books from that era of long-form fiction quite hard going if i'm honest but that's one of that's one of the few I would say I have I have read more than once for fun. I I, I think it's really interesting, isn't it? When do you think there's a difference between pretentiousness and playfulness? Or I suppose a more interesting or useful question is like, how do you tell? How do you know when, as a writer, if you're being pretentious or playful? Well, so I I think that's actually a pretty simple one. I think. If it's being done with the impression of saying, aren't I clever, it's pretentious. If it's done with the intention of saying, won't you enjoy this, then it's playful. Like, basically, it depends if you're putting in something experimental for the sake of the reader's experience of the story or whether you're doing it to demonstrate, like, how, you know, deep and complex you are. But isn't that, uh, isn't that a sense, isn't, doesn't that come down to, how charitable the reader's feeling because uh, I yeah. would say like if someone is doing a card trick like to me like I could I could do one of two interpretations I could go oh this person is doing something that defies breaks my sense of reality to make me delighted how generous and cool or I could go this person's showing off and doing something that I know isn't real and i have to humor <laughs> them how what they're drawing focus how selfish you know like it, it seems to me that that's located in my interpretation rather than the act itself yeah definitely like there's a spectrum and uh it very much depends on how you're looking at stand-up comedy is another very good example um like because obviously in the best of both worlds you do something that makes you look really clever and really delights or intrigues or interests or challenges the people consuming your material. And yeah, stand-up comedy, I think, is is a good example of that because I've, do, I've done stand-up in the past and I deliberately don't anymore because it's very, um, for me, certainly... Too easy. I can't, yeah, too easy. <laughs> because you were going up there and you just felt a little bit... It was like... You were just the, the you were just scything through crowds, and you're like, this is this is almost indecent how I'm reducing these people to to to, to sobbing jellies of hilarity. It was it, it did feel almost kind of predatory to me though, because it was like, right, I'm going to keep making you all laugh so I can feel great about myself, um, and you know. Yes, you're just standing there, just forcibly changing a whole room full of people's mindsets just so you can get a rush about 
you know how good at putting together a joke or whatever you are so, so i just it felt a bit grim to me in the end um so hang on these audiences were they were they not there had they had you, no, had I had you taken them hostage? You're right. <laughs> yeah, that's the predatory element I was missing. <laughs> right. This yeah, was this was a bus. This is. No, it's it's a funny one though. I think there is, you know, and if an audience loves what you're doing, like I think that's that's great. I mean, obviously, if they don't, they probably won't laugh. So you know, it's not really that dangerous a situation ontologically. But you know, I think there is. There is a funny line in between doing something to show off the fact that you can and doing it because you think it would make for a better piece of work. Um, and like I say, sometimes it can be both. And that's when you're really on a winner. Yeah, I guess um, maybe if you maybe if, maybe there's there's an element of having to or there's work you can do to earn an audience's trust. But like you didn't start with like the first page being green like it was into the book a little bit that you start doing that and yeah. so it's like going okay i'm going to tell you a story and we're going to do that and then once you're it's clear that i am fulfilling my part of the contract and i am trying to make interesting stuff happen to you and i'm giving you characters and everything you've bought in for then i i'm gonna you know let's play about a bit more and i, I because you now trust me like we you understand Okay, I'm having fun. A bit like if you'd been like running a uh, a role playing game with a group for a while. You've been like DMing a Dungeons and Dragons sex session, and then two years into it, people turn up at the session at your house, and they all sit down, and you slide them, and they've all gone to sleep around the campfire, and then you slide them um, completely new character sheets with different names on, and go, okay, you wake up, you're this character, this character, and this character. Um, you couldn't, you wouldn't want to do that session one. But if you got their trust, they understand you're in it to make their game fun, and you do that. I think everyone around the table will be like, "Ooh, what's happening? This is quite exciting," because there's a level of trust in there. Well, absolutely, and the best, really weird, like running works always start off with at least some anchor in normalcy, and then drift. Like, yeah, if I was going to do a long odd twitter thread i wouldn't just start with like a picture of a coin with centipede bungle written on it like you know no one would like that would do nothing for anyone it's just alienating and stupid although now i say it actually i might just do that and not do any follow-up tweets anyway <laughs> i mean yeah but that's because i've read your work so i'm immediately I, i'm immediate although like I, because of the in the attempt for my brain to like go okay i have to anchor this in some kind of narrative immediately i had a a i i had a um hard-boiled detective um on a rainy street bending down picking it up examining the coin while smoking <laughs> and then repeating the word centipede bungle to himself in a kind of like gravelly uh like a scotch uh ruined uh, voice Centipede Bungle. <laughs> There's a name I never thought I'd hear again. It's got a real ring to it. <laughs> it does. It does. It's a, yeah, it does. It, it's a bit. It's a. It's a. It's a bit like. Um, it, 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 it does. It does sound um, a little bit like Ca Captain Beefheart album, doesn't it? Yeah, it's got some sort of Dickens cadence to it as well. <laughs> It's or, me, Constable Centipede Bungle. 
or a um or like it's a um part of a uh, a, a, a a local um newspaper headline uh the norwich evening news is like uh local mp shamed a third centipede bungle hits the invertebrate import sector <laughs> Because that is, it's always it, it bungles, and um, he, he'd be he'd be slammed. I think is the uh, uh, there'd be calls for him to resign. Yeah, <laughs> calls just like howler monkeys bellows rising from the rainforest at dawn. Resign. No one knows who's doing the calling. Ghosts, beasts, the earth itself. But there are calls. No, no one can sleep because there's this constant sort of um, e- echoing sort of j- jungle um, music of resigns until... <laughs> the living rock itself will not rest until this man has vacated his position. For his for, for his centipede bungle. Um, shall we um, look at somebody? <laughs> oh, yes, we're here to talk about stories, aren't we? Yeah, Very good. That's just... Yeah. Let's bungle oh. some centipedes, my friends. Absolutely. So, um, the piece... He's going to chug a can of Rio Tropical. Hold on. That's such a such an amazing a man of culture rio rio tropical is really nice i don't know why it's not like england's iron brew because like you know you know like in scotland's the only territory in the world where the top selling drink isn't coke Mm, yeah and i just think i think rio deserves that sort of place it's just an incredible drink and it's something everyone loves and everyone knows but yeah it's like if aston martin's cost a tenner like it's plentiful it's wonderful it's everywhere and yet it's not the most popular i I feel like i drink it enjoy it and then immediately forget it exists like a sort of doorway to the fairy realm Eternal sunshine of the delicious tin. Yeah, I just, I just, I, I, I have one normally at a sort of open air swimming pool or something like that, you know, with my hair still uh, wet and, and the slight um, smell of chlorine on me. I drink it, go, this is great. And then like a kind of uh, magic elixir that has to be sort of defended from the modern world, otherwise it would be uh, cruelly exploited it, it, I, I, it does its magic, and then I forget, and then I forget that it exists. It, it, it's like it, it just emerged from Avalon at, at Britain's time of need, and then maybe it's King Arthur's blood, <laughs> and like you can't take that... too much of it out of him in any given day. Hen- hence the name Rio Tropical. They they wanted to subtly yeah. sort of like evoke the Arthurian legends <laughs> without giving it away. Yeah, it's but it's there. And and it comes to people in the time of need, and then they forget. My goodness, is is Rio a tropical climate? I never, I I felt like it was subtropical, but I mean, he couldn't call it Rio subtropical. That'd be, I mean, I'll send them notes. Maybe that's what's holding it back: is people sort of going, actually, uh, Rio is a is a is a subtropical climate. This makes no sense to me. Yeah, your, your email to them. Sorry, folks, bad news. Just got out the latitude numbers. And <laughs> you're not going to like this. <laughs> yeah, I. Yeah, it's uh There's another. There's another type, but Rio Tropical. Rio Tropical is a is is a subtype of more than one Rio, isn't it? Like, there's another. There's another Rio, isn't there? What is there? That that's sure. I'm gonna. This is like walking up to a 12th century peasant saying, "You know, there's a second pope." 
<laughs> there's i'm sure like otherwise they wouldn't have to specify rio tropical would they it would just be called rio you, uh, wouldn't, you wouldn't you wouldn't you wouldn't call it like you wouldn't call I'm, it i'm literally on the rio website as we yeah, speak so there's, highly interesting there is only yeah so there's rio tropical there's Re, rio light tropical but like tropical is the sub drink is the sub i think i'm casting my mind back like a powerful psyker to the turbulent years of the late 90s. I think there was one called Rio Florida, which was like citrus. Yeah. Do you remember that? So, well, all I'm finding at the moment is Rio. This is great content, by the way. So I think... I'd like to have like a deft fencer. I'm just keeping you away from the, the top. Oh, okay. I found an Amazon listing with Rio Florida. Rio Citrus. It's... But there's no way to buy it. <laughs> I like the I way you. I like. I, I'm imagining you clawing at the screen, <laughs> 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 unable to pull the drink out of it. I, I can see it, but this 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 pain is impenetrable. To try and make it work. My no, can't be done. Can't be done. Anyway, there you go. So how about these extracts? <laughs> okay, I'm gonna. I, I, I'm. I, I, yeah, and I, I'm gonna get myself. I'm gonna order myself some, um, some Rio Citrus and Rio Florida. I remember them. Oh, it, what, what Wait, you a can world! Order Rio Citrus. Hang on, I'm tearing this wide open again. You can send me the link immediately. Well, it, I, I, well, actually, the only link. It's in Design Week. A new look for soft drink Rio. Maybe that's incredible. Okay, we'll 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 resolve this. We'll resolve next this. time we speak. We'll have yeah. an update on the Rio Sitch. Yeah, I mean, this may turn out to be eerily relevant to the piece. Now it may m- turn out that we read through the piece and it's, it's so the, it's good the that we with, you know we've set the found... centipede bungles downing a can of Rio Citrus while looking to camera. We know we're in trouble. Things have gone magical realist. Yeah, but it might be that this this whole discourse was necessary grounding for any of our critique to make sense. So we'll see. Exciting times. Um, this one's called, well, it's Untitled, and it's by Tubal Kane. That is, of course, a nom de plume. It's not really the um, the great architect uh, of, venerated by um, the Freemasons, uh, presumably. Tim, I've lost you. Okay. I've lost you. Sorry. You, you what a time. Me. Hello. I can again now. Cool. Hello. I was just I was just saying um this piece is um untitled and it's by Tubal Kane, which presumably is a uh, uh, a nom de plume and this isn't the um great architect venerated by the Freemasons, I'm imagining. Oh imagine though. Would be well either way. Uh, uh, hello to um, our, our wonderful um, submitter. Right. I ran full speed past the last man of our recon patrol, the PC, who counted me off as I passed. We hadn't lost a man. Not yet, anyway. The PC was in our rear where he would normally be, except the formation was bass backwards. Our front had become our rear. Right there, you could see something was wrong. Our patrol had wandered into an ambush and come under automatic weapons fire, mostly from homemade AK-47s. You could tell from the jackhammer sounds. We scattered, disorganised and strung out. Our PC signalled 
us to back out, regroup and flank the hostiles. First in but last out, my squad became the rearguard. As the hostile fire died down, our PC glanced up the trail towards the ambush site one last time, turned to follow me out, then collapsed into a heap of camis and gear, crying out in pain. I skidded to a gravelly halt, kicking up a cloud of dust, reversed and ran back to get him. Nothing heroic, just reacting to a fallen comrade. Leave no man behind. He got tagged in the upper thigh. If his femoral artery was nicked, he would bleed out in minutes. I couldn't treat it under direct fire. I shouldered my weapon and vaulted him across my shoulders. He was a heavy son of a bitch. But I was a strong motherfucker. Put me down, Sergeant. Get help. That's an order. His defocused eyes looked right through me. Cold sweat. And and the um, the uh, submitter cut there, um, cleaving very closely to the... Uh, exactly to the 250-word submission limit. So, um... What do we think? Oh, sorry. I had myself muted there because I was laughing very cruelly, but I was a strong motherfucker. <laughs> that really well, comes out of nowhere. Um, I think I think some of the um, some of the uh, humour there may be unintentional because I am doing a very, as I always do, a very flat read of the text, and so. I, I don't know, but I, I tend to put... I, I, I think that there's always going to be a uh, humorous line coming from uh, me reading it in estuary English. I, I can't help but... I can't help but go slightly Englishman when I... But I was a strong motherfucker. I, I, I think, like... I, I think, like... Yeah, yeah. I t I'm trying to decide whether that is... I, I think I want... If I had read more of this character's voice, I might have been more prepared for that. But it, I, it would have been very hard for that line not to give me big Alan Partridge vibes. I, I, um, why do you think? I, I don't know. It's, um, it's, it. Okay, so we were talking earlier about sort of earning trust to do weird things. And I think kind of the same is true of cliche. Because um, that sounds like, very authentically, I might add, like dialogue from a big 80s action movie. You know, the, the age of sort of sweat and biceps. And I think, it, you know, that voice has definitely got a place. But at the beginning, it seemed fairly just straightforward sort of military fiction. And then for this guy to go full Predator extra in paragraph four just struck me as a bit of an escalation. Um, I, guess, I guess up until then, there's not been much informal... There's not been as much informal language and it kind of comes a bit out of nowhere. Yeah, it's, it's very hard to put my fin finger on what struck me about it. And I think it's probably one of those cases where a tiny tweaking of how it's expressed could probably make it fit in a lot more fluidly. Like, I'm not saying it's, a, it's you know, don't do a swear or something like that. Um, I think it was just, there's something about the phrasing well, it's and got the, the timing. It's got the parallel <laughs> construction, right? So, which I, 
I so my feeling is I could probably like those lines in another context because it's it's got this parallel construction. He was a heavy son of a bitch. Um, so it's the it's the subject, the verb was, and then an adjective, and then a uh, swear um, directed at a mother. And... That's just him calling himself a motherfucker. Seems odd. I, I, you know, I'm not saying that that's without linguistic precedent, but there's just several slightly off things about it. Maybe if he did it in dialogue, like, you know, um, the, the the person say, oh, sorry, I'm such a heavy son of a bitch. And he could say, oh, don't worry, I'm a strong motherfucker, mm-hmm. which would be like, they're both sort of weirdly self-deprecating and it would be a, a an interesting moment of connection and it would seem uh, easier to deal with because it's, direct rather than reported dialogue or internal mental i don't know the words you know what i mean yeah i know yeah i know what you mean it just um it seems uh it seems it seems a bit flat maybe my my feeling about this piece so going back to the beginning a little bit maybe we can sort of like look at what leads up to that um i ran full speed past the last man of our recon patrol the pc who counted me off as I passed. So I've got a couple of things to say this about this. One, I don't think we need to say full speed. Like I think, He's not a boat. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I, I think like you're always like every, that's a, so full speed is, is, is a great, is a great example of like a, of a hidden um, adverb because it's, yeah. it's modifying run. And lots of us are sort of a, a bit careful about how we use, adverbs because they can sort of proliferate through your text but it's not always easy to see if it hasn't got an ly in the end but um full speed is modifying ran i just think like i ran past the last man of our recon patrol i ran full speed past the man of last man of our recon patrol like no i don't see something different there i just the set the second one with full speed just has more words and it takes me longer to find it feels more colloquial as well um like and also it works against what I think is the major strength of this piece, uh, which is like now, obviously with me writing all the forty k stuff, I write quite a lot of military sci-fi and I read quite a lot of it as well. And one thing a lot of people struggle with is over over describing scenes like this. So when you've got a, an action scene, particularly one, um, you know, which is very immediate and reactive because something is surprising happening. Uh, surprising is happening like here people can get really bogged down in describing where every participant in the fight is standing and sort of describing everything that happens in the fight in this weirdly exhaustive passionless list of you know coordinates and bullet strikes and things and it, it can yeah it can get really tedious whereas Tubal has been really good with the pacing of this uh, and the delivery of the details, they've given you enough to know what you're meant to be caring about in the situation and what the general mood is uh, without going overboard and, you know, describing it like an overzealous, overzealous dungeon master. And so I think, yeah, little things like cutting out full speed would really add to that sense of leanness that this has. Yeah, I, I think... Um... It, it, I, I, I'm so I've got a few things like I would like I didn't know where this was happening by the end I there's there's a mention of 
tra- a trail and dust mm. and gravel. It is happening in a void, yeah. And I, aside from that, I know there's trail, I don't know, like, there's an ambush, but where's it, I mean, where's it coming from? Where's, I would love to know, I'd, I've got no idea of, like, the general terrain, let alone whether, are they in a gulch? Are they in, uh, probably not a jungle or tropical if there's dust and gravel, but, like, what... Where are they? I, I just, I need to, I, I, and I feel like that is relevant if you're coming under fire, is the things that become immediately relevant to you are well, where is cover the, and where are sight lines. This is the sting in the tail of my praise, because uh, I think it is like, you know, it's a really competently structured action sequence. I don't think it's a good opener. Um, Like, and these are these are meant to be openers, right? Yeah, these are these are always yeah. like the first, uh, the the first thing that we know apart from the title of the piece is what this is what a reader would come to. Because apart from anything else, there's some squandered investment here um, with the the PC. Who? Okay, maybe it's because I wrote for a PC Games website and just heard the word PC a lot. But I'm just imagining as him as a man with a cathode ray monitor for a head. See, I was imagining him as a uh, uh, as a village bobby, um, and I'm sure it, you know. Obviously, it's an accurate term. I don't know what it stands for. Um, yeah, I think you need to be gracious with people who don't know, like military specific jargon. You just need to say what he is the first time. Yeah, yeah. That- uh, it, yeah, it says the last man of our recon contra- patrol, the PC. So the, the 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 person speaking, I don't know if I don't like, I don't know if is that because it sounds like the narrator is sort of making allowances for people who don't know that the last man is the PC. So they're kind this, of already explaining to a to an uninitiated audience, but not explaining. Yeah, and well, this is what I was going to say about squandered investment because, like, within words, this man is is badly wounded and is being rescued. And there's potential really high stakes there. If only we'd had a couple of hundred words beforehand where we had any idea who he was, what his job was, you know, maybe it's an incidental thing he says that gives us an idea who he is. And, you know, uh, that... They, our patrol had wandered into an ambush. I hate to say it, I'd actually like to start with the wandering. Not a lot of wandering. Um, maybe someone said something unusual uh, or interesting or funny and, you know, some some minor thing happened that is nevertheless enough to justify being the first paragraph of the story. And then maybe one or two other paragraphs. You can, you know, again, being lean, you can get a lot of implication into a very small amount of text. But you need some before you can do this to full effect. Because, like you say, Tim, it's it's happening in an abyss. We don't know where it is, who they're fighting for, what their jobs are. And just even the, the, the smallest bit of upfront investment in that, that stuff would make this pay off so much harder. Well, I, th- I think it, I think it, um, it gives you a... It's a big clue um, that you've started in the wrong place if 
um, in the second paragraph, you're immediately having to drop into the blue perfect to contextualize the first paragraph. It's it's a kind of classic move where we kind of know we want to start in it with something exciting in media res. We want to start with I ran down the street, the cops chasing after me. And then what I see again and again is writers go oh, better explain what's going on. I had only been out for a walk and then uh, 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 having, I was a newly married man. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. I, I, I thought I would go and get myself a sticky bun when I heard this breaking of glass and the alarm from the diamond shop, diamond shop. Moments later, a gunfire was, were, bullets were whizzing past my head and the police were chasing. And you're like, okay, but we're not, we've immediately abandoned the, pre the, the narrative present to sort of go back and explain what, and I think it's better to start, in, like, as you say, in the narrative present. Our patrol had wandered into an ambush. You're telling, not showing. Like, it would be so much more interesting, as you say, to give us the, the location, give us some minor conflict. Like, another person in the patrol is irritating him or her um another person in the patrol they're worried they're they're expecting an ambush and they're watching out for it but we well, have a little trope i always love in, in especially in film is where two people are having an argument and yeah it could be about like, oh i swear we're gonna get ambushed down there no we're not it's gonna be fine yeah well no i don't know uh that that bend looks pretty tight and and corporal corporal and then everyone notices that the corporal is lying on on the floor with a hole through his head and then the bullets start flying you know like one of those it's wonderful being caught in a real surprise as a reader where something completely unexpected happens and immediately uh, flips the tone on its side and that you, you could do that really well with this I, I i yeah yeah i i agree i also think like if you look in that first paragraph and you look for how many clear and I'm going to I'm I'm going to whip it out. So I love crunchy specificity. I love it when we get nouns that give us a very clear idea of, of what something is. And I actually think, you know, PC can potentially uh, be one of those because it's when, when it's contextualized. But we have speed. We have man. Uh, m another man. We have the rear formation front something. Uh, those are all very abstract, conceptual. They're not concrete nouns. Um, so we don't have very much to go on about what's going on. We only have, uh, they're only kind of situational, relative uh, evaluations of something. Yeah. It, it's talking entirely in con con concepts. So I, what I want here, and, and just look at this for a second. We've got, um, we hadn't lost a man. Not yet, anyway. You don't need to add that. I, I get that the idea is it's kind of like nodding, like, uh-oh, there might be trouble. You don't need to, like... It's a, uh, the narrator, it sounds like he that he or she is, like, winking at us a little bit. Um, we hadn't lost a man is fine um, on its own. The PC was in our rear, where he would normally be, except the formation was bass backwards. Well, like, unless we... Who is this? Who is the nominal audience that's being addressed by this narrator? Because you can't half use kind of military terminology and then kind of go, the PC was in our rear where he would normally be. 
that suggests you know you're speaking to a non-expert audience, right? Because you're explaining this is which was normal. God, it's almost back to that thing we um, we talked about earlier, which is the difference between doing something to show off that you know something, and because it it's going to be useful to the reader. Um, and there, they, they you know that is to to show off how much they know about army stuff. Well, that's how it comes across anyway. Well, I'll give you another example. Um, except the formation was bass backwards, our front had become our rear. If you're going to use like a term like bass backwards, I think like most readers understand what you mean. You don't yeah. need to then say explain. It, you can't use something like that and then have the character explain what it means there's just no point then we're slowing things down they're supposed to be under fire right they are under fire you don't want them then explaining the niceties of there's no point using slang if you have to explain it every time you use it right there you could see something was wrong right so you've spent three sentences this character spent three sentences saying the formation shouldn't be backwards like i yeah i know like i know like also you're under fire also you're under fire it's like you're un you don't need to like step in and go you could i i just yeah, or, be... i mean to, to put it another way what you what you could have done with that is uh i suppose say why it matters that the formation is backwards because when i read that i had a strange moment of thinking is the problem here that it's it's not standard protocol. It's untidy. Like, yeah, because as you say, they're under fire. That's going to be the... So if it had been like the formation was was bass backwards, um, you know, our useful military asset um, that would have been handy was at the wrong end of the line or whatever. You know, like, there needs to be a... Like, it's fine to make the detail, but it needs to increase the stakes. And, and up the severity of the situation. Because, so, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure why I'm meant to mind that they're backwards. Yeah, and it's... And also, that's a... So what's interesting about that is that's something that, looking back on a engagement, right, you would think you should, you could be like... I can see someone reflecting on a time where they were under fire and it turned really nasty, going, we, you know, we got turned around... Uh, you know, our formation was bass backwards. Um, like right then, you know, I should have known that it was going to turn into a disaster. That's a kind of reflecting on the past. But what I like and what feels more exciting to me in the second paragraph is this moment where it goes, um, our patrol had wandered into an ambush and come under automatic weapons fire, mostly from homemade AK-47s. You could tell from the jackhammer sounds. Now, that's that, my favourite bit, actually. That, yeah, that detail, it's it appeals to the senses. It also makes me go, okay, like th this suggests a sort of level of knowledge. But to me, I wonder if what I would... I mean, I think it's always worth listening to the problems people raise, but not necessarily following the solutions they suggest. But I feel like starting with the jackhammer sounds... You know, the first, you know, the first clue was like the jackhammer sounds um, that meant well, that like AK-47. Well, heavy lifting than the rest, doesn't it? Like, as you say, it like it gives you all sorts of clues. It tells you this is the real world because it's AK-47s. 
Um, it tells us this is almost certainly not a state military uh, that's being opposed. Like, uh, as you say, it's got tactile quality to itself, just jackhammer sounds. And yeah, it does so much, doesn't it? Like, we've been pointing out all these examples of subclauses that don't need to be there. And then, then there's that little Hercules of a sentence. Yeah. Uh, it, just doing so much more than the rest put together. And all yeah, you, to start with it. Yeah, and all you need is, like, jackhammer sounds echoed off the gulch walls or, you know, jackhammer sounds um, uh, echoed off the... Um, uh, um, off the rocks or something like that. Which, because then you can have it giving us, you can have the way that the sound reverberates give it, clue us into their immediate surroundings. And then, uh, and, and, and because the first thing you'll hear is the sound, assuming you don't see any movement. The second thing will be the bullets like whistling past your head or hitting someone, right? And someone going down. That to me, and then, and, so just giving us that like haywire fog of war moment of just not knowing what the fuck's going on. Uh, yeah, because it sounds like the writer, like I like I obviously don't know whether they have like been in the military or whatever, but or just are very keen. But they know what they're talking about. That's obvious. And they've probably got quite a lot to draw on here. So, yeah, I agree. And I think it's just done a little bit distantly. We scattered, disorganised and strung out. I'm going to just, like, hammer the show-don't-tell thing here. Like, one, keep it within the um, third-person limit, the first-person limited. Like, tell us what the protagonist, the narrator, does. You know, does he drop to the ground? Does he, like, crouch? Does he, like, has he got his weapon in his hands already? Does he scan his surroundings for where the gu the gunfire is coming from because the first thing you'll hear is sound the second thing will be the tactile thing of bullets hitting or landing or whatever the th and then you'll be and then the visual will come in right and then it's like our pc signaled us to back out regroup and flank the hostiles how is it an order is it a hand signal what's going on because this is like you're you're telling you're giving us a summary you're summarizing what happens and i'm not being given direct access to it i don't know what disorganized and strung out looks like i don't know how i don't know who i'm looking at i don't know how many people are in the squad i i, I, I what, in what way are they disorganized are they like and tripping over their untied laces or is there a formation they should be in how do i know that they're strung out do you mean strung out as in they're tired or strung out as in they're in a long line what what does it mean and why are they in a are they on a high ridge? Like I can't see it because all you're all they're giving me, all the narrator is giving me, is a diagnosis of what it means. They're not letting me see the scene and come to my own conclusion about what it means. It's very tricky because we're kind of half I feel like we're half saying this needs a lot more detail and half saying it needs a lot less. Um, but it's true. There's I suppose this is really the the appropriate discussion here, I suppose, is one about economy of detail. Precisely, um, it's it's it's, yeah. it's it's about um, it's about idea density within a few telling phrases, like the jackhammer sounds. Right, like you, we could have said that as going, we need to know 
you know, what world this is happening in. We need to know a bit more about the narrator and how much they know. We need to know about who the people attacking them are. We need to know about the area they're in. Well, just like Jack Hammer's um, Jack Hammer sounds echoed off the rocks. Or um, the Jack Hammer sound of homemade AK-47s, you know? Yeah, I, yeah, I would. Although I would, my suggestion is that you get Jack Hammer. Like I'm just thinking about the way the order in which you give the syntax of a paragraph should reflect the psychological process of the person understanding that information. And yeah. I think the first thing you hear is the jackhammer sounds. And then like a split second later, you go, that's gun, that's gunfire. And then there's another cognitive leap to go, it's homemade AK-47s. So I suppose what could be a useful exercise if you're writing something like this is to maybe make yourself a list of all the information you could possibly want to know to you know, to have a godlike omniscient understanding of the situation. You know, how many people are there? Who are they fighting for? Where are they? Uh, are they hungry or thirsty? How long have they been out? What time of day is it? All that sort of stuff. And then basically think about bits of information you could drop into your narrative that kill as many birds as possible with one stone. You know, obviously it's not try and get all of that information in there or you'll end up with a weird hyperdense block of unreadable text but you know just have a look and think well what details could strike off two or three of these in the space of one sentence precisely like if you're precise, and, you know and also like do ambush. something fun and actiony it, it, i i just think yeah I, I think actually it can give you like we were talking about with like the term vampire like carries all this kind of um semantic freight within it while only taking up one word like we have terms like the hostiles, which we don't have any sense of who they are. We have the ambush site. Now, I'm sure, like, that's as the hostile fire died... Right, our PC signalled us to back out, regroup, and flank the hostiles. Um, yeah, so, well, like, the, the, well, from back out from where? Regroup to where? What, like, what does flanking look like? Well, how are you? How are you flanking them? Like, where? As the hostile fire died down, why is it dying... Why is it dying down like why are they stopping firing um our pc glanced up the trail towards the ambush site one last time um i don't i just don't i can't see anything because i don't know what it is i don't know where it is what, there's what no proper nouns about the like invoking tropes like vampires that something this could have done if in the first sentence or two for example it had said, yeah, mentioned them being five miles out of, um, I don't know, Kandahar. Uh, then I would know if it was an Afghanistan situation. Um, you know, if, if it had mentioned, I don't know, a Huey going overhead, I'd know it was Vietnam. And I would be able to fill in so many blanks with my sort of generic osmosis acquired knowledge of what those wars looked like and involved uh, obviously you can then go and specify everything to your own liking later but if you drop something you know, a, a hint that invokes a wider context that's familiar to people it doesn't give them that sense so much of being 
lost in abstract actions because they can they can paint a rudimentary set uh, from from general knowledge. Agreed. I, I think obviously if you're working in the real world, if, if it's fantasy, that won't help. But given the AKs, I'm I'm thinking that's relevant here. But if it, but then if it is, but if it if it were fantasy, then I still feel like there's often a bunch of like tile sets that fantasy has that you can kind of like gesture towards to give people a rough um set of tropes that they can start kind of like if you're not going to provide them yourself that they can start sort of like filling in the gaps with the semantic like so there's one other thing i want to sort of mention which is you know you were saying i I think i might have an idea of like why the he was a heavy son of a bitch but i was a strong motherfucker it was like unintentionally funny and giving you alan partridge vibes um is this moment where um before the narrate in the the narrator says, I skidded to a gravelly halt, kicking up a cloud of dust, reversed and ran back to get him. Nothing heroic. Just reacting to a fallen comrade. Yes. It's just like, well, we weren't actually like, oh, you know. That reads like such a humble brag. It does read like a humble brag. It's just like, it's, it's no, I mean, it's no big thing. You don't need to, you don't need to pat me on the back. You know, leave I pulled the car off my son's trapped legs. Uh, it wasn't my maximum bench weight, but uh, it was quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. It does feel, it's so, and it's, I get like that that is not the intent. And I, I, I get that that's sort of a, just an unfortunate, it's funny, isn't it? Because it shouldn't, it shouldn't, re, there's nothing inherent in it. I don't know why him, he's just flagging that it's nothing heroic. I suppose it, in in the humble brag thing, it just feels too much. It's like, well, maybe like the thing that would seem more modest would be like I, like I was sh- I was shitting myself. Like I, you know, maybe if I thought about but it I longer, to, I wouldn't yeah. have done it. Like, but but it was it it was but it was I, it was on reflex. That kind of thing feels more honest. That just feels. I don't know. Yeah, or if it's like, I'd love to say it was a heroic action, but I simply hadn't considered I was running into the line of fire yeah. or something like that, you know? It, and I only realised once I was already out past the barricades. Like, there, there are... You know, that is actually a great moment for character development, and you've taken it, but it makes the narrator just sound... A, just kind of a bit like one of those dudes who has to mention that they've been in the army in yeah. pretty much every sentence they say. Also, I want to say, put me down, Sergeant. Get help. That's an order. Um, I don't think your superior officer, when they when they tell you stuff, I'm you know, I'm not in the military, but I, I I think it's assumed when they give you direct commands. Um, in a in a war in a battle situation in a li- like a live theater of war when you're under fire when they give you commands. I don't think that they have to specify. It's not like Simon says. I, I think that's a movie <laughs> trope. I don't go. They're like, oh, they're like, go, 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 move out. Sorry, you just to be clear, is that was that an order or were you just was that just a sort of suggestion that you're throwing into the pot there? Like everyone's dead if you have to do that. I think it's evolved as a sort of a counterbalance to characters who are loose cannons and never work by the book, and yet they get results, so they're kept in their positions. Yeah, and yet they're, they're allowed in the military superior... despite being uh, like continually like arguing with superior officers while under fire. Yeah, 
like I think that's what that's an order evolved to deal with. But I, I'm like I am totally happy to be humble and stand corrected if this is not the case. But I just don't think that happens with actual war. I I just think put me down, Sergeant. Get help feels more authoritative than than the the the. the it's weird. But the emphatic line at the end, that's an order, feels less authoritative and more like, I am your mother. Um, yeah, it feels like they're a teacher, a supply teacher losing control of a class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, 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 I think the, 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 the superior officer would sound more in control. And, and I realise they're like bleeding out and a bit delirious, right? But um, I, I still think all the training the assumption is like if you are t- if you're given an order the assumption is you're going to follow it um and 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 again there's like an element of humble brag because it's like i know you're too heroic to follow orders <laughs> yeah yeah that's it isn't it? it it's like it's like i know i i know your sense of compassion and uh, self-abnegation is almost impossible to override, but I'm putting in the code. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I I think, like, I'd really... Would you be able to talk a little bit more about your experience of trying to write sort of, like, you, you've written some, like, military SF and stuff, like, how you manage... How you've tried to manage... And, you know, I know that there's multiple routes to this, so I'm not suggesting you give like the definitive answer. But um, how you balance that thing of wanting the reader to feel like they're in safe hands, like, you know, you're showing that you know a little bit about the armies that you're writing about while making it not just seem like a a battle report, you know, yes. that you're doing it, that that, that it's kept within... It, it you know that a person is experiencing this so i always uh i'm just trying to think of media res starts and whether i've done those um of course there's like scenes as well as you know some some scenes might start in in media res as well because every every opening scene is in sense in a sense yeah some of the rules that's what i like doing first pages actually because so most of the rules that apply to them can just be imported to any time you have to just move to a new location or time so honestly when, when i start writing a fight scene uh, or a battle scene because for me a fight scene can either be you know intense one-on-one close combat or it can be you know a, a monstrous siege with millions of combatants on either side you know where there is action going on what i will write first is the dialogue uh, and that is either between the characters in the scene or the thoughts that are being had, um, you know, or, or mental moments that need to be encountered by the main character, I suppose. And I will work out what happens there. And then if I'm being completely honest, uh, I will just fill the spaces in between with pretty fighting. Um, yeah, obviously, if it affects the plot massively, um, it's different, but if we're talking about, you know, uh, an ambush scene, for example, I will work out the moment that the ambush will happen in the text. You know, I'll put a line 
uh, in between two lines of dialogue and say ambush begins here. Um, and obviously then I will, I will contour the fights to what needs to happen when. Um, but mostly it's just making sure that all the nuts and bolts are there in terms of what's happening with the characters and then finding particularly evocative, dramatic or uh, arresting uh, moments of action to put in between those that yeah, maybe mirror what's going on, uh, maybe present an interesting contrast or maybe just really keep the reader glued to the page because there's, you know, starfighters exploding and other exciting things like that. It sounds like your sort of, sort of favourite type of scenes to write, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, these kind of like view from the bridge style, sort of people looking down across a vista of the battles kind of unfolding. Um, not from the command yeah. tent necessarily, but from like the, the equivalent. So it's something that they're invested in, but they also are able to be kind of in their own reality as well. Well, so like one of my favourite um, things I've seen in a film in years, I watched 1917 recently, and there's the, the stories about a, a soldier who is sent um, across no man's land and through the, the carnage of World War I France to deliver a message. And he's on his own for a lot of the film. And there's one scene where he has to move across a, a ruined city by night and he's being illuminated by flares moving overhead for an unknown purpose. Um, and the score for that scene is absolutely immense and dreamlike. And the sense of awe and threat uh, is mentally deafening in the whole thing. It's absolutely overpowering. But it's still, you know, while it's an incredible... What is the score for that scene? I, I'm imagining um, Bobby... Mc it's not, like, don't it's worry, not be happy. <laughs> it's, uh, it starts like a glockenspiel and then becomes this, like, rock, like crashing wave of um of strings it's um it's called the night window wonderful bit of music um but yeah it is essentially a story about a bloke running through some ruins by the light of flares trying not to get shot and that's very much where your investment is but there is this whole second layer going on with this impossible vista that's really beautiful and completely horrifying where, you know, beside all the feelings you're having about the character and the stakes attached to him, you're also thinking, fucking hell, this is absolutely, like, awe-inspiring uh, that, you know, we managed to create a hell this profound. <laughs> like, you know, you, you have some pretty huge, grim thoughts about war at the same time. And that's great if you can, you know, if you can have a, a broader, quieter background thought going on while your main character is going through their personal stakes so yeah i i love vistas i love big backdrops i suppose like what you're describing there as well and i'm wondering whether it's something that could be thought about with this scene is something that occurs to me in this moment is that nothing about this ambush ironically feels surprising to me 
and maybe that's unfair but just this idea that they get get they're getting shot at they uh they back away the uh the the squad captain gets shot um someone goes back to rescue him and is is ordered not to it's all like fairly standard fare for what we would imagine the kind of like small vietnam style engagements of kind of asymmetric warfare whereas um well, it's like an identikit fight right it's it's yeah it's built from a load of established components there's nothing that makes me think oh wow this is this is something else and and like and and what you're describing there in the first in 1917 is not like it doesn't have to be like weird in the sense of like self-consciously goofy and kind of like what the only way I'm going to be able to sneak through this town is if I dress as a uh, as 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 a Belgian peasant woman and I have to bluff my way through in this game of cards. It's not about making it like necessarily goofy and silly and farcical, but it's just like this weird like moonlit like planet it's, it's an unexpected angle um you know it is the idea of yeah a man crossing some ruins under fire is not new um and not extraordinary that happened all the time uh but the way of presenting it with this big sad orchestral score and this insane lighting with these flares uh it makes it completely unique and unforgettable uh, and yeah, any mundane action, any endlessly repeated generic component of a war, uh, which we've all seen a hundred times before in, in film and in print, you can make it original, you can make it your own by finding an angle to show that that sequence or a difference about it. Uh, the, yeah, the, the wildly changes the, the, the reader's perception of what's going on. And then, I mean, I'm assuming that... It- the person makes it through that that sequence otherwise if he just halfway through that orchestral score he gets shot in the leg and then and then and then it pulls back to the sniper who winks at camera the 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 opening sting from the grange hill theme plays and then it irises out on the winking eye end of film that that would be weird (laughs) but i would respect the uh the 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 auteurship yeah um that's your centipede bungle moment um, <laughs> but so it, yeah i yeah. Do, I'd, like i do i do like i like like we've said and just to like br- to sort of finish this on a sort of positive and i i, I don't mean this in a, as a, a, a as a as a kind of booby prize at all but as a genuine thing like there are like like the scene is a good choice of exciting scene in, in its sort of raw form and the and we've identified a couple of moments like the kind of like sound of jack jackhammer noise, meaning that they must be homemade AK-47s as like a great detail. So there is, there's like promise in this, definitely. Yeah, it's not like a really bad piece of writing. It's just missing a lot of opportunities. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I, I've, I've sort of, my experience has often been that when I've had written a scene that really is just not working and I've gone, ugh, Often it's and and it just seems like my ability to write has fought, fought, has died on its ass. What's actually going on is I've started in the wrong place, or I haven't given the character enough to want. And when I fix that, 
the scene doesn't write itself, but it suddenly my writing imp- the the standard of my writing on the line just improves. Oh, it can make a huge difference. Yeah, and quite often I found I've held on way too long. Um, to, uh, I suppose, putting a scene or you know continuing to struggle away on a on an opening or you know or a pivotal scene because I think that's really what needs to happen. It's with it, it's a lot easier to change the plot wholesale um, than to force yourself through you know a bit of it that isn't working yeah. sometimes. I think I yeah. think that's re- I think that's really true and 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 often I have to reach a point of like almost like a little mini grief process where I go this car this story isn't going to work I'm going to have to give it up and then I'm going okay so the story is dead so it wouldn't actually be so bad by comparison if I just changed this character so actually now uh they're a a sentient uh a golem made out of uh beans. knives what beans or yeah uh, and, and and then you kind of go oh and if that's true then this bit would suddenly work and this would be more compelling and oh whoa the story's back in business and you kind of like you have that little gr- grief period which is letting go of the story as you conceived it in order for something better to be able to replace it well it's like a sacrifice isn't it it's like yeah all right then zeus like this is the only goat i've got but i guess you want it dead <laughs> Um, and then you do that, and then a man staggers through the door dying with a big bag of gold, uh, and, and you're like, oh, sick. Thanks, Yus. <laughs> Didn't know that would happen. Uh, all I needed to do was let go of the goat. Beautiful. Um, yeah, so th- those are our thoughts on, on that. <laughs> um, thanks very much for um, helping me with this piece. If people want to... Uh, what's the name of your... Um, uh, latest book uh, my latest book is called The Twice Dead King uh, part one, Ruin uh, yeah, and, and hang on I've heard of someone being once dead but twice dead twice yeah like twice cooked pork only it's a king and he's dead that's amazing and, um, where, and um, where can people pick that up from from all good bookshops uh, presumably yeah I mean it's um it's a Black Library release. You'd be able to get it through Games Workshop um, website or stores. But I'm I've seen a load of listings for it on booksellers as well. Cool. I'll put a link in the so, show notes um, if anyone wants to uh, uh, grab that book. And um, if people want to find you on Twitter, uh, it's Frog Croakley. F R O G C R O A K L E Y. To everyone listening, I hope you have a wonderful week of writing. Me too. <laughs>